0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 209, The Battle of Reading. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at the BritishHistoryPodcast.com, and it costs about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Amante, Shauna, and Sarah for signing up already. When we left off, the Danes had occupied Reading, fortified it for several days, and then sent a detachment west along the River Kennet. In response, Elderman Athelwolf of Berkshire had raised the local fyrd, and he killed one of the Danish lords in battle, and for the first time in a very long time, at Engle Field, the West Saxons defeated the Danes in combat. Now, Athelwolf was wise, and he knew that he wouldn't be able to overcome the full might of the great heathen army all on his own. And so upon winning victory, he turned his forces and headed to join King Athelred, Prince Alfred, and the army of Wessex. But before we join him, I want to take a moment to discuss what it meant to lose an early medieval battle. Now, obviously it would be a blow for morale and territory might be lost. And if it's in defense of a region, any local villages might get pillaged. Also, renown and confidence in the leader would be damaged. And we speak frequently about these consequences of losing battles. But there are other consequences. Think about it in the context of this fight that we just talked about. The Scandinavian warriors who fell in the fight were still laying in the field. And lying among them would be the wounded Scandinavians, at least the ones who were too injured to escape. And frankly, it's unlikely that they would have fared all that well in Anglo-Saxon hands, so the Danes would have to count them as a loss as well. Also lost would be all the gear that was left on the bodies of the dead and wounded. So, imagine that Olaf took a spear to his leg. He's still alive, but he can't flee the field when his fellow Northmen retreated. Consequently, The army of the Danes had just lost Olaf, and all the power and skill that he brought to their ranks. And to make matters worse, if Olaf was also kitted out in a chainmail bernie, or he sported a helm, or had a well-made set of spears, or a shield, or maybe even a sword, well that would be also left on the field, as were any of the weapons that the fleeing northmen dropped when they ran. The fact of the matter is that there were weeks of skilled labor and expensive materials behind each and every piece of equipment that these men carried. And if they lost them, they wouldn't just be able to go down to Armor R Us and get a replacement. So everything of value on Olaf was now lost and it could be easily picked up by the members of the Berkshire FURD. So if Unferth thought well, and he had enough status among the Berkshire Ferd, and he happened to be the right size and shape, he might have just scored himself a slightly used Bernie, something that usually only the wealthiest Anglo-Saxons could have afforded under normal circumstances. So Unferth was now way more protected for any future battles that he's conscripted into. And even better, one of the lesser nobles might have gotten his hands on Olaf's sword. So the men of Berkshire just leveled up their gear with this victory. Not only that, but they were able to recover and tend to their own injured comrades. And if the Danes had done any looting prior to battle or brought any provisions with them, the Berkshire army could help themselves to that as well. After all, the Danes wouldn't have had any chance to repack and haul their provisions away with them. Their morale had broken, so they were just running and riding as fast as they could. Everything that wasn't strapped onto the bodies of the men able to run from the field was left there. So keep that in mind when we hear of these battles. Losing a battle didn't just weaken your position. It also stood a good chance of strengthening the forces of the victor, or at least giving them a chance to mitigate their own losses. Consequently, the victory at Englefield Field was a pretty big deal for the Anglo-Saxons. Not just on a morale level, but also in terms of the balance of men and resources. But the Danish detachment wasn't wiped out. It was just broken, and it was allowed to flee back to Reading. In Reading were the rest of the Danes, as well as their two kings, Halfdan and Bagsek. The Anglo-Saxons might have a renewed sense of hope, but the war wasn't over, not by a long shot. King Athelred knew this, and consequently, Athelwulf was riding out there to meet up with his king and the army of Wessex. Now, King Athelred was moving quickly, but he still was some ways away, and early medieval armies are kind of slow moving when they march, especially when they're continuing to pick up additional ferds. So as a result, four days had passed following the victory at Englefield before the army of Wessex was fully arrayed before the royal tun of Reading. That means that the Danes had four days to prepare for this attack, four days to repair morale, four days to discuss tactics that were used at Engle Field, four days to build additional defenses. Four days could be an eternity in the wrong hands. And on January 4th, 871, the army of the West Saxons spread out in front of Reading and they were led by two men who had no experience fighting the Danes. The closest King Athelred and Prince Alfred had gotten to battle was the Siege of Snottingham. And somehow, despite ever meeting their opponents in battle, despite simply having to hold their position and starve the Danes out, they had managed to snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory. This wasn't a good sign. But... Ilderman Athelwolf of Berkshire was present. And by this point, he had defeated the Scandinavians on multiple occasions. And so had his victorious furd. So all hope wasn't lost. The sight of this standoff between these two titanic forces must have been a hell of a thing to witness. The West Saxons would have likely been arranged into a line of shield walls. It would have looked like a dense thicket of round wooden shields possibly reinforced with leather and an iron band around the rim. They would have also had ashwood spears with a leaf-shaped iron spearhead. And the warriors would have been mostly clad in leather and cloth. And they stood ready, awaiting the order to advance from their lord. And their lord, in turn, was waiting for the order to advance from the war leader. Now, most likely, this was King Athelred himself though it's possible that he was getting advice from Alderman Athewulf and others. Across the field awaited the Danes. Just like the West Saxons, their army was likely arranged into shield walls, and they were similarly equipped, and also holding fast, waiting for their orders. Behind them were the newly constructed ramparts of Reading. The Danes had wasted no time in construction, And had their forces hidden behind those defenses, the men of Wessex very well might have found themselves in a similar problem that they had found in Snottingham. But Elderman Athelwolf and the experienced members of his army would have known that something was different this time. Miraculously, incredibly, the Danes weren't just jeering from behind their walls. They'd come out. They weren't looking to withstand a siege. They were looking for a fight. Maybe they were eager for glory in Valhalla. Maybe, having seen the temperament of the West Saxons at Snottingham, they decided they wanted to defeat these peasants once and for all. Maybe they had some sort of plan. The West Saxons didn't know. But what they did know is that this time, there wouldn't have to be a siege. This time, there would be a fight. I wonder how long the two forces stood there, staring at each other. Did they attack immediately, or did they hold, hoping to shake the morale of their enemies before the battle even began? Did they scream war cries like the Britons of old, or did they stand silent and motionless like the fearsome legions of Rome? We don't know. At the very least, the West Saxons were probably surprised by the size of the Danish forces. And this was miracle number two. The Anglo-Saxons had been expecting to face the great heathen army. After all, that was who they were told had captured Reading. But the Danes who stood outside of the walls of Reading weren't all that numerous. Sure, there was still a sizable force, but it wasn't the overwhelming tide of heathens that they'd been told about. This almost looked manageable. Had Elderman Athelwolf really killed that many of them? After the defeat, did that many of them flee? I mean, these were a pirate people and notoriously fickle when it came to leadership. What happened? Had the country finally earned God's favor and been delivered? Was this the sign that he was finally with King Athelred? Whatever the case, I imagine it must have been quite a boost to morale for the West Saxons. And then the order was issued. The men of Wessex were to advance. And they did. Asser doesn't give us blow-by-blow tactics, and I find that unfortunate. But my guess is that upon seeing the West Saxons advancing, the Danes held. Or maybe they advanced upon them, but slowly, within their shield walls. And the reason why I say this is because the shield wall is a defensive tactic. It's ideal for fighting against superior forces, especially in a situation where you can protect your flanks. And where better to do that than right next to your own ramparts? So why would you march into the field? You'd stay right there, right? Similarly, it would be safest for the West Saxons to stay in their shield walls as they advanced, perhaps providing cover for the back line so they could hurl spears at the Danes as they closed in. It's probably what I would do. Slow and steady. But like I said, we don't have a blow-by-blow tactical discussion for Masser, so we can't really know for sure. So maybe they charged in quickly in open formation and just winged it. Whatever the case, the fighting quickly turned fierce. This was a pitched battle. The forces were well-matched, equally equipped, and despite the recent defeat at Engle Field, the Danish morale held strong. Now when you think about these battles, think about something similar to the hoplite battles of classical Greece. The advancing army would likely approach in slightly open formation, or maybe a shield wall, and then loose a volley or two of projectiles, likely their spare spears, once they got into range, and then they would close ranks into that shield wall and make the final approach on the enemy. Because of the nature of shield walls, a huge chunk of the fighting would have consisted of pushing and shoving. Tactics in such a circumstance tend to be pretty limited. All you could really do was try and hold the line and hack or thrust with your weapon until holes opened up in the line of your opponent. And that's likely how it began. A short advance, a rain of spears, and then the real work in the shield wall would begin and the fight would become terrifyingly close and personal. Shields would clash, spears snapped, men fell to the ground to get trampled and impaled. It was savage, and it probably felt endless. For the Danes, it must have been agonizing. They fought fiercely, but it wasn't enough. There were simply too many West Saxons, No one could win a battle when they were this badly outnumbered. So minute by minute, the Danes were being pushed back. They were pressed down the ditch. Some of them might have fallen as they lost their balance on the slopes. And those that did were probably quickly killed by the men of Wessex. And still, as they retreated, the West Saxons advanced. There would be no surrender here. Not after what they had done to Snottingham and Reading not after how they conquered East Anglia and Northumbria. For the Danes, this was a fight to the death. They knew it. And they were losing. Badly. Not long after the fighting started, King Athelred and Prince Alfred undoubtedly saw their victory on the horizon. The men of Wessex were proving their valor. Ilderman Athelwulf was organizing his forces masterfully. They all were. The Danes were compressing into an ever-smaller shield wall and were literally pressed up against their own defenses. Their backs rested against the walls that they had fortified. And the West Saxons began encircling the far smaller force, pushing in for the kill. For the Danes, I imagine that in the face of this, time must have felt like it was in slow motion. That everything was literally dragging. Especially since they knew something the West Saxons didn't. This was a trap, and the West Saxons had just walked right into it. And suddenly, finally, there was a huge clamor that came from within the ramparts of Reading. I wonder if King Athelred and Elderman Athelwolf heard it, or if it was lost in the din of the battle. Even if they didn't hear it, they certainly saw it when the Danes, quote, "...like wolves burst out of all the gates and joined the battle with all their might," quote. In the space of a few seconds, the West Saxons had gone from massively overpowering the Danes and holding the strongest position in the field to being terribly outnumbered and caught in a flank attack. The Northmen were pouring onto them from the sides, which was where there was no shield wall. There was no protection. And then things went from bad to worse. Elderman Athelwolf, the hero of Englefield and Winchester, fell. The sight of that likely caused his men to break. And it wasn't long before the full force of Wessex dropped their shields and spears and ran for their lives in a panic. But unlike in the previous battle at Englefield, the Danes saw no advantage in allowing the West Saxons to flee unopposed. They were looking to end this fight right here and now. And so they gave chase. According to a later source, King Athelred and Prince Alfred barely escaped the battle with their lives. The Danes hounded them over long distances. And the king and his Atheling brother only managed to lose the Danes when they forded the River of Lauden at Tweeford, Which they only knew about thanks to years of traveling with the royal court. Now these same sources tell us that they later regrouped along with what remained of their forces at Windsor. We can't know how accurate this later source is. It could just be a myth or a dramatic flourish intended to flesh out the story. But it certainly feels like it's possible. But whatever happened there, and however they escaped, the two brothers survived. And so did a portion of their forces. Behind them lay the body of quite possibly their greatest general, as well as a good portion of their warriors, any equipment and provisions they had on them, and of course, the Royal Tun of Reading. This was an unmitigated disaster, and people might have started to wonder why they weren't winning. What was going wrong here? Was it the nobles? Was it God? What was it? Asser tells us of the grief and shame that had overtaken the West Saxons following this loss. That morale was completely shattered. It was all but over for them. And you can see why, can't you? In Snottingham, the mere sight of these Northmen had caused the men of Wessex and Mercia to flee. And now, in Reading, when they had their most powerful warrior on hand... When they had the full might of Wessex and they finally met the Danes in battle. This was the first real engagement with the Danes that King Athelred and Prince Alfred had, and they fell victim to exactly the same tactic that had defeated the combined armies of Northumbria only years earlier. How long would this go on? How long before all the Anglo Saxon kingdoms would be defeated? And you can imagine that Athelred and Alfred were wondering what they were supposed to do here. And the answer to that really depends on your perspective. But some scholars have pointed out that it's possible that King Athelred and Alfred both looked to scriptures for answers. I mean, it was a common practice at the time. Though the guidance that they would have found within those stories would have really depended on what they were looking for. King Athelred, in particular seems to have looked to biblical thinking of the time, and he came to the conclusion that the most important duty of the king, in fact, the single most important factor in battle at all, was to have the blessing of God. Athelred needed to appease God. I mean, God in his wrath had brought these heathens to Wessex, and his duty as king was to function as a conduit of God's will to the people of Wessex. And so while Alfred was likely thinking of strategy, morale, and the allocation of forces, King Athelred was thinking about matters of the soul. The next time that they faced these pagans, he would have to ensure that God was on their side. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com, and you can join us on Twitter, we're at British Podcast, and you can find all kinds of other communities to join by going to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and looking in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks for listening.